Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Petra Schmidt, who is Assistant Professor of Organizational Behavior at ETH Zurich. Her research examines the psychological and neural mechanisms involved in the effect of social power on behavior. Welcome, Petra. Hi, Gil. Nice to meet you. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your older papers uh, from 2015, Power Effects on Cognitive Control, Turning Conflict into action, in which you say power is known to promote uh, effective goal pursuit, especially when it requires one to overcome distractions or bias. Uh, You said you propose that this effect involves the ability to engage and implement cognitive control. So before we get into the details of this, Petra, so what what exactly do you mean by power? Is Is it sort of a perception of power or is it something real? Hmm. Well, I would say it's uh, something real, but it is, I mean, a psychological property. So I don't necessarily uh, think about um, power as a specific rank, but it's more how powerful you feel. Because there's been research showing that how powerful you you feel affects your behavior and your decision making. It's less about the rank that you have. Sometimes people feel powerful when they have a higher rank, but this is not always the case. So here I'm really focusing on this mindset of power, this psychological experience um, of being powerful. Yeah, so the mindset of power. So in in an organizational context, power could come from titles, uh, but it could also come from um, sort of networks in the organization, right? If if you're at the center of a network, you may not have the title, uh, but you may you may still have power in the sense that uh, people rely on you um, and you're considered sort of a leader in the organization. And that might give you power, right? Exactly. We typically define power as having control over other people. That's one aspect. And also um, over access to valued resources. And these resources include knowledge. And the network is also giving you some knowledge or access to knowledge. 
um and like all other things like affection and money and food it's it's a very broad um concept mm -hmm. um it's not only about one's rank yeah yeah so, so it's a fascinating thing so uh you you have a couple of studies in this paper um looking at how power enhances sort of behavioral performance right you want to talk about those studies uh, yes, I'm actually quite excited about um, them because they also tackle uh, theoretical debate in the literature. So for quite um, a long time, one has assumed that power liberates people and makes them independent from others. And as a result, their behavior and the way they think is very disinhibited and automatic. So people, um, if they have power or feel powerful, they don't control their behavior. They don't have to. But my research is very inconsistent with them, with, with this kind of claims. Mm -hmm. So I showed actually that um, when people experience power, they control their cognition. They are really able to focus on what's important right now. And whatever is not important, what is called irrelevant, they can um, inhibit. They do not get influenced by that. But they have this better um, ability to focus uh, so this is like one study in which I showed this. And in the other study, I used um, neuroscience methods to go even deeper um, into the processes that underlie these effects. So yeah. I was able to show that um, when there's a conflict happening, so that when you have a focal goal, but there's distracting information around, um, both people who feel powerful and people who feel powerless um, experience this kind of conflict. They both um, perceive that there is this conflicting or distracting information there. So they both process this. But those who experience power, they are able to use this information to then control their behavior, to really engage in behavior that is goal-focused. And those who feel powerless, they experience this, this conflict, but they um, are not really able to use this information to um, behave in a controlled or goal-oriented way. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. So the ability to focus um, and, the, and the ability to um, really resolve conflicts in more efficient fashion, uh, you, you're saying those things are, uh, those things come uh, when you have power? Exactly, yes, yeah. Um, people... Yeah, go ahead. Um, people who experience power, uh, they are able to resolve those goal conflicts. I also have done research um, in which I showed that they experience different goals as less conflicting, um, probably because they possess this ability to deal with these conflicts and solve them in a more efficient um, way. Yeah, so it may have a lot of sort of um, policy implications too, right? So, you know, there's a lot of talk about, this is not in the paper, but I just want to get your perspective. There's a lot of talk about uh, guaranteed minimum wages and, you know, things like that. Um, and so uh, let me ask you this, when you, when you have resources, that is also sort of power, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's basically um, a part of the definition of power. If you yeah. have access to resources, resources that you want and other people want, yes, then you have power. Yeah. So, so what do you think? Um, society, you know, society more generally, 
giving people more control, uh, giving people at least a feeling of control <laughs> uh, could have a lot of beneficial effects, right, in their behavior. Absolutely. Um, so my research shows that you can um, basically induce this experience of power in all kinds of people, and many effects are positive, um, especially when it comes to goal pursuit. So people are really better to focus on their goals, to not get distracted, uh, to perform well. So it has a lot of, of beneficial effects, and um, this is especially important in the organizational settings where performance um, is a major goal. Yeah, so in, in organizational designs, uh, Petra, I, I wrote a book in 2009, it's called Flexibility, in which I argued that, uh, probably prematurely, that there will not be large companies in the future, and each individual essentially becomes a company and self-select, that there won't be any hiring, the way that we think about hiring, individuals will self-select into a, a goal, and that would be the company, and they will dismantle that after the goal has been accomplished. Um, do you see things moving in that direction? Or we still have, obviously, conventional organizations all around the place, but uh, do you see things moving in that direction? I'm not sure if they move in this direction concretely, but uh, um, they do move in the direction of um, less hierarchical organizations, so more like flatter hierarchies. Uh, where people can bring in their visions and also um, make contributions to important decision-making processes. This is definitely the case, and this is also a way to empower people and to benefit from the positive effects of this uh, empowerment feelings. Yeah, so a flat organization, in some sense, is a way to distribute power. And so, you know, maybe there is some sort of an optimization from an organizational context you can think about. Mm -hmm. I wonder, right? So, yeah, do you have, have you done any research uh, in that direction? How to sort of optimize organizational structures from this observation? Um, no, I haven't really looked into the structural level. I'm more doing research on the individual level. So basically how um, experiencing power changes an individual. Um, the structural level, how it changes organizations or how, how organizations can change to give people power or, or to make them more performing. Um, this aspect I haven't really investigated in my own research. Yeah, yeah. I want to go into another paper, um, a related paper, Power Effects on Implicit Prejudice and Stereotyping the role of intergroup phase processing. Um, you say power is thought to increase discrimination towards subordinate groups, yet its effect on different forms of implicit bias remains unclear. Um, and so again, you have a couple of studies here. So, 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 so what, what are you investigating here and what did you find? Um, so here we distinguish between two different forms of implicit bias. One is called implicit prejudice, and these are kind of automatic associations with a group that are either positive or negative. Yeah. So you either like someone or dislike someone based on, on the group he or she belongs to. And the other form of um, implicit bias is implicit stereotyping. 
And this is more precise. You have a, a concrete association of a specific trait with a group. So um, very well-known stereotypes are that blacks are athletic um, or um, what else? Um, uh, Asian people are um, good at math. So <laughs> these are very specific um, uh, associations of a specific trait with a group of people. And we look of, um, at how power affects these two different types of implicit bias. And we found that when people are in this mindset of high power, they express more um, prejudice and also um, they stereotype more. Mm -hmm. So it kind of seems that for them, like um, we focused on, on black and white, uh, white Americans. So African-Americans, they associate with um, negative um, valence and with the stereotypes that they are um, athletic and whites, um, they have like more implicit, like positive associations and they associate them with the traits being smart. Hmm. Um, so this happens and this happens on a very like unconscious level. Um, yeah. But we then also here did a second study in which we looked at the neural processes that analyzed these effects. And it's actually quite complex, but also interesting. So we find that the underlying processes differ in these two type of implicit biases. So in the context of the evaluations, so positive or negative evaluations, we found that when experiencing high power, people process the African-American faces greater than the white American faces. And we interpret this that in this context where you make evaluations, they perceive the African-Americans as a threat to their own power. So in order to um, maintain their power and keep them down, they kind of focus on, on, on this African-Americans because these are important right now um, because they, they do represent this threat. But in the context of stereotyping, where these associations are way more um, like a specific trait with a, with a group, there we find the opposite. So people who experience high power focus more on in-group faces. And we have, we interpret this that in this context, um, they have no interest in um, focusing on our group um, people. Um, they don't have to because they, they have a lot of power. They don't have to care about um, how other people are, what their interests are. So that's why they don't focus um, on the outgroup faces in, in, this, uh, in this context. Yeah, I was also wondering, Petra, that uh, there has to be some sort of a risk management aspect to it from an evolutionary perspective, right? And so uh, perhaps clan leaders um, uh, rewinding time 50,000, 100,000 years ago, um, did this uh, very systematically, uh, perhaps from a risk management perspective, they had to keep their clan safe and uh, they had to essentially identify interlopers, let's say, so to speak, uh, in a very efficient fashion. So I wondered those uh, attributes uh, sort of gotten selected into the modern, modern context. Yeah, um, the reason why we have this uh, implicit biases 
is actually because our brain is is too busy and can, can so that it cannot process all information about um, all individuals. So that's why we tend to see people as part of a group and then we attribute characteristics towards that group, to all people in that group. Um, and um, as you say, the, it kind of makes sense in some contexts. So normally the in-group um, we try to protect and the out-group you often see as a threat. So here we have like this quick evaluations happening and they happen like in milliseconds, like a uh, uh, pace. So it's really, really fast. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely something that um, has been happening a long time ago already, but we still have them just the form of these biases, the content of, of them changes um, a little bit over time. Yeah, that's really interesting. So sort of a lower cognitive cost uh, for the brain, um, maybe the first branch of that decision process, you have some sort of a classification going on. And that classification can be trivial in the modern context, maybe use skin color, maybe use something else uh, to, to put people into buckets. And uh, that, that takes actually very little cognitive uh, energy uh, and at that point, you can you can make decisions uh, sort of at the group level, um, but, and, and sort of optimize cognitive cost that way, right? Exactly. That's basically the goal. Um, and as I mentioned before, this often happens automatically, so you cannot. Oh, uh, it's very hard to control it. It's super fast. It happens right away. So if you want to control your biases, you need to get an awareness that you're having these biases and. You have then to engage later contr control to um, try to inhibit those. But it happens really quickly. Like even people who um, would say, hey, I'm not a racist, they often have this implicit um, negative associations with outgroup people. Yeah, I was thinking about that. So it appears to me, Petra, correct me uh, if you don't think this way, it appears to me that this attribute is now incorporated into the into the hardware or at the very least into the operating system. So everybody everybody comes with this notion uh, and you can use software to dampen it. You can put apps on your on your hardware to, to sort of get better. But at the end of the day, the, the operating system and hardware have this innate, um, innate uh, deficiency, uh, which seems to me that it, it's, it's uh, sort of difficult to do, difficult to dampen. You know, you, you, could, uh, you could smooth it out for a period of time um, when the environment changes, it comes roaring back in some ways. Mm, so there are ways to try to, to deal with, with these biases. So as I mentioned before, if you are aware of your biases and if you want to do something about it, um, what you typically can do is to really go into an interaction um, with already specific plans um, of not showing any bias. Or if you have, for example, um, if you're a recruiter and have job interviews with people um, from from different with different backgrounds um, in group and out group um, members. So you can structure the interview, make sure that you ask every person the exact same question, um, so that you you are giving both people the same possibility to shine. 
So there are a couple of strategies, um, but if you're not really trying hard to overcome your biases, you're gonna have um, show um, biased behavior. So you need to get aware of them and then you, you have to think about what type of action in what specific moment can help you um, not um, act on your biases. Yeah. You see here an indirect effect of power on implicit prejudice through enhanced processing of out-group versus in-group faces suggested a potential link between face processing and implicit bias. Um, now, face processing uh, in the largest sense uh, is a complex mechanism, but uh, it seems to me that um, the modern human uh, is using very few attributes to make that classification. For example, something like skin color. And so are they really processing the face? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there are different aspects um, or face processing steps. In the paper that I did, I focused on the so-called N170 component of the eventuated potential. This index um, uh, shows basically more um, how you process the the structure of the face, mm -hmm. um, how the 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 lips are aligned with the nose and and, and the eyes and and basically um, the structure that makes you recognize that a specific uh, picture is actually a face. Yeah. So it's not. Yeah. In, in that study, I didn't focus on black and white. Um, the, these, um, I, didn't, I, I excluded all color actually from the faces, um, but African-Americans and white Americans also have a different face structure. Yeah. So in, in my paper, like all effects were found based on this face structure. But there are other papers that look at skin tone. And they also um, find that um, the more typical one is um, for a specific category in terms of skin tone. So for example, the blacker uh, someone is, the greater are um, the biases against these people. So there are really different aspects of space processing and they all play a role um, together. Yeah, I mean, the structure of the face makes a lot of sense. Again, from an evolutionary perspective, everybody had the same skin color. So that, that would have been a useless attribute uh, from a classification perspective. And so we would have used structural faces uh, for clan identification, and we continue to do that. And this is something that in the modern context, we can tease out very easily, right? So we can just uh, artificially change skin tone and, and see how people react to, react to the picture. Has, has that been done? Yeah, there has been a couple of studies doing exactly that. Um, and as I said, it's like really these effects, like the the far away it gets from your own skin tone, um, the more, the greater your biases are. Um, so there are a couple of effects here. There are also studies um, in the legal context. Um, so studies investigating um, whether someone um, should get penalized for a specific um, behavior and then they, it's also found that um, our group members and those who are, have very typical, um, uh, like in blacker skin, um, those who are penalized even more than those that resemble yourself. 
Yeah, so going back to the paper, you say that these findings demonstrate that power can affect implicit prejudice and stereotyping as well as early processing of racial in-group and out-group faces. So, you know, there, there is, uh, we talk a lot about uh, the police force in the U.S. Uh, lately. Um, and when you are in a powerful position, what you're arguing is that these, these types of um, these types of decision processes are, are natural. And so in some sense, you have to be extra aware of them uh, to, be, to be effective, right? Yeah, that's true. So um, this process happen very fast. They happen automatically. And so it needs um, special training um, to, to avoid them, to inhibit them. There's also quite some research um, in which they play computer games and um, in these computer games you see black and white people carrying either guns or um, cell phones and the task is basically to shoot when the person carries a, a gun but to not shoot when the person carries um, the, the cell phone. So skin color shouldn't matter here. It's just it's just about gun or cell phone, but you do find effect. You do actually find skin tone effects. So typically, people, especially um, white participants, they tend to shoot black um, people more when they carry cell phones than white people, and they they shoot less often when white people carry guns um, than when black people do. So there are these biases and we absolutely need to get training to get rid of those. I also did a study in which I looked how power affects um, this kind of shooter bias that I just um, uh, was talking about. It's not published yet because um, the facts were um, a bit weak, but we did find um, uh, some hints that when experiencing power, this effect is even bigger. So you even have um, a stronger bias um, showing that that you um, are more likely to shoot black people when they carry actually a cell phone and not a gun. Hmm. Yeah, so, so this is not in the paper, but I just want to get your perspective. Uh, if, we, if we see, if we think of this as sort of a mental deficiency, let's say, do you think there could be some uh, therapeutic interventions one could try? Um, yeah, I think one should definitely work on them. So the first um thing you should do is actually getting aware that you're having this this bias yeah. um so basically you can then go into um this kind of situation with the knowledge like hey you have to be extra cautious um here is an african-american he, he does not necessarily have to carry a gun i might have this kind of associations in my head but in reality that might not be the case um, or he or she might not actually be um, criminal or, or aggressive. So awareness is the first step. And then you can um, train your biases with specific reaction time tasks. That's, that's one step. Yeah. Um, and we are still actually working on, on interventions. Um, so I think there's still a long way to go. Um, but really that awareness and willingness to control your biases, maybe um, just you know, take a step back before you act. Um, these are the most important um, things to do. Yeah. I want to go into another paper you have, Power Effects on Instrumental Learning 
evidence from the brain and behavior. Eusebi investigated whether high power facilitates instrumental learning relative to low power, an effect that would support power effects on goal pursuit and decision making. What do you mean by instrumental learning? Um, this is about learning from feedback on your own behavior. So if you try something out, you don't really know um, whether it works or not, and you're getting either positive or negative feedback. And then you learn about um, the probabilities um, of choosing like something and that's giving you a good outcome or choosing something else and that's giving you a bad outcome. Yeah, okay. And, and so uh, so you have two studies here too. Um, you want to talk about them briefly? Um, yeah, so um, in these studies, I also manipulated people's experience of power and their task was then to learn which choice option is the best. Mm -hmm. And be, there were like some probabilities um, between this choice, behind these choice options some were just more likely to give you a good outcome than others. Yeah. And participants didn't know about um, these probabilities behind um, their choices, but their task was to learn it. And they had like several rounds, so, so they just start to choose and then they get the feedback of like, yeah, this is correct, positive, smile, um, or this is incorrect, wrong choice. And slowly over time, they learn these probabilities and they are more likely to choose the one um, that is, is uh, correct and to avoid the ones that are incorrect. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that people who experience power are better at learning both types of learning. So choosing the one that is correct and avoiding the one that is incorrect. This is actually quite exciting also in the light of past research because past research was always saying like the powerful just focus on the rewards on everything that's good because they um, are not in a threat situation. They don't have to worry about negative feedback or um, punishment and these kind of things. So the idea um, in the literature was always power leads to a focus on rewards and low power leads to a focus on negative feedback and punishments. But that's absolutely not what I found here because in the learning context. So the high power participants were really better at learning from goals, the positive feedback, and they chose then this, um, this positive options more often and also learning from the negative feedback. So they also learn to avoid the bad choices uh, more quickly. And also here, I had a second study in which I, want to, I wanted to investigate the neural processes that underlie um, these effects. Yeah. Um, and here I distinguished um, between, not only between positive and negative feedback, but also between so-called valid or invalid feedback. Mm. Valid feedback here was when um, you get a positive feedback when you choose an option that has a high probability of being correct. So let's say this option is correct for 80% of all cases and you get a positive feedback here. That's That we call a valid feedback because it reinforces the good option. And we call a feedback invalid um, when it reinforces a bad choice. So for example, if you get a positive feedback on a choice that only has a 20% chance of being correct. So 20% is not, is not good. 
it's below um, chance level. Um, so here you get a positive feedback, but it's actually not really a good choice. So that's that we call invalid feedback. Hmm. And what we found that people who experience high power, they are they were processing the valid feedback more deeply than the invalid feedback. So they basically kind of um, ignored the invalid feedback and focused on the feedback that really helped them um, learn which choice opportunities were the best ones for them. Yeah, so, so thematically, this is somewhat related to the first paper we discussed, right? Uh, distraction and focus. Uh, so it appears to me, Petra, let, let, me, uh, let me know if I understand this. Uh, it seems to me that power gives you a level of focus, uh, ability to manage distraction uh, and really make better decision-making processes that uh, ends up with, uh, with better outcomes. Is that the way to think about it? Yeah, that's exactly it. So I, I found that in different contexts, here in the learning context, and the other paper more on this um, behavioral control context, um, I actually also found it um, in the context of public speaking, um, where the focus was more um, on, on uh, emotional processing. So there we found that people experience high power, experiencing high power, they were less worried about um, negative evaluations from others. Mm. So they were able to um, focus on the goal, not worry about what other people think. And because of that, they feel less anxious, less stressed, and they uh, performed um, better. They gave a better um, quality speech. Yeah. So we really find this kind of effects in all kinds of, of contexts. Uh, so that's why we or I conclude that power really makes people pursue goals more effectively. So they are better at uh, pursuing those goals. And um, in, in further research also showed that they actually are able to do that more efficiently, meaning that they are able to pursue their goals successfully with less um, cognitive investments even. Yeah, so again, um, I see some policy implications here, Petra. So um, if, you, if you think of power as access to basic resources, and I'm thinking education in the US, most students uh, get a significant amount of debt by the time they get out of get out of school, and debt is in some ways reduces your power, right? Reduces your freedom, and uh, it might have some negative implications um, for education and students in general. Um, do, do you think that way? Um, yeah, that could be. Um... As you mentioned, um, it decreases your resources, your financial resources. Education, of course, also increases um, your, your knowledge, and yeah. that's also a resource. So it has both sides. And I guess it's also a bit dependent on the person whether he or she is able to focus more on what he or she has gained um, and, and the resources he or she has and then has this greater experience of power or whether he or she really has to focus on the resources that are, are, are missing. So if this uh, financial 
um, problems are really big, then it's it's really hard to to experience your power because this is uh, is really fundamental for you. You need um, uh, to pay for for your rent and and your basic uh, needs. So if that becomes really central in your life, um, then definitely you you feel out of control. You feel powerless, and this can have um, a lot of negative impact. If you're sort of able to focus on what you've gained and um, where you do have control and where you do have resources, um, if you best can shift your mindset, um, this can help you to get um, a bit out of, of this um, negative circle. Yeah, I mean, but what's fascinating, you know, in, in the paper, as you say, power engaged more strategic processing of goal relevant feedback. And so um, people at least perceiving power, uh, and it could be resources, it could be freedom of decision-making, whatever the case may be, uh, just in a, in a better cognitive state uh, from a learning perspective, it sounds to me. Um, yes, exactly. So it's, uh, it's really about the way you feel uh, so like in this study, basically we had students, so they didn't really have any difference in how much resources they, they had or how much debt they have. Um, they just came in my laboratory and I randomly assigned them to either high power or low power. Um, so it's like basically anyone could be anyone um, in regarding of their background. It's really a random assignment. And I did find that those who were in this mindset of high power, they, they had this more strategic processing, which helped them to, to focus on, on their goals yeah. and to learn better. Yeah, so we'll take a quick break, Petra. When we come back, we'll talk about some of your recent papers. Okay, great. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back, uh, Petra. We were talking about power, how power affects cognitive control, stereotyping, learning, and, and so on. And it appears that it has a positive effect on all of these things. Um, obviously, stereotyping is not a good thing, <laughs> but uh, it, it, uh, it seems to correlate uh, with those aspects. You have another paper, Less Power, Greater Conflict. Uh, in which you say power facilitates goal pursuit, but how does power affect the way people respond to conflict be uh, between their multiple goals? Um, and so, so, so we're looking at here uh, situations where you have multiple goals, maybe a complex set of objectives you want to accomplish and how power might affect that. Yes, exactly. So before I was really investigating on how power makes people focus on their goals and so they don't get distracted by anything. But then I was wondering, well, I mean, not everything is always a distraction. We may, we may have multiple goals. So 
how does power affect people when they do pursue multiple goals? Do they also just focus on one goal? Um, do they um, don't care about the, the other one? Are they able to deal with this um, goal conflict? Do they actually experience goal conflict? Um, so in this paper, the focus um, lied on this um, experience of goal conflict because when we experience that our goal goals are in conflict with each other, so we cannot pursue one goal um, satisfactorily because of the other one, then we often feel stressed um, and this makes us pursue our goals um, less well and we also don't feel um, as, as good. So it has negative um, effects for our well-being. well-being. So yeah. here in, in this research, I looked, I, I gave um, people um, different goals, multiple goals, and I was interested to what extent they experienced this very same goals as being in conflict with one another. Because sometimes you may have different goals, but you don't um, necessarily see that they are in conflict with each other so that you have to choose one um, and the other one wouldn't work. So maybe you can also perceive um, it feasible to pursue both goals. And I actually indeed found that people who experience high power day experience that these goals that I gave them, they are not so much in conflict. While those experiencing low power, they had this great feeling of conflict between the goals. And then I was also wondering, what about their own personal goals? Do people who experience high power experience a lot of conflict in their own goals? Um, and, and people who, who feel powerless. So also here I found that people who experience high power, they experience less conflict between their personal goals um, than people who experience um, powerlessness. And in the end, I wanted to see whether this has consequences for their planned behavior. So would they, if they experience a lot of conflict, would they just stop um, trying to pursue um, the goals at all because they're kind of stuck in that conflict? Or are they still able um, to make plans to pursue their goals. And what I found is that uh, when people experienced low power, they really had this great experience of goal conflict. And this also prevented them to make plans um, on, on pursuing these goals. So this can be another reason why people who experience high power are better able to pursue their goals. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I was just thinking that if, if less power is analogous to less resources, uh, I would have thought at least intuitively that people with less resources uh, have more experience managing multiple goals. Um, but that is, that's not the case. That's not what you're finding, right? Um, that's not what I what I find. No, I actually even have another paper which is um, connected to this one, where I gave uh, my participants um, two different tasks that they had to solve at the same time. One was visual and one was auditory. Yeah. And um, the goal was just to perform as good as possible. Um, they didn't, I didn't say anything about um, focusing on one task or doing both tasks. Um, the strategy uh, was for them to choose. I just cared about the end result, which was a combination of the two tasks. Mm -hmm. And I found um, that 
participants who were in this high power condition, who experienced high power, they prioritized one task and did this task super well. Um, and the other task, they neglected a little bit. So they, they didn't perform so well on that. And participants who were in a low power condition, they tried to solve both tasks. They were okay-ish on both tasks. They weren't super good and not super bad. Um, so the overall performance of high power, low power uh, people on the two tasks together was the same, but the strategy was completely different. So the low power uh, people, maybe that's kind of connecting with what you um, uh, argue before, um, they did try to really deal with, with these both tasks at the same time. Yeah. Probably takes more resources. And the high power um, participants, they they prioritize there. So they thought, well, the end result is important. So I'm just going to focus on one task and perform really well on this one. And I uh, forget, forget about the other task for the moment. So there's a, a difference in how they approach um, multiple goals. But it doesn't seem that low power people are better to, to deal with multiple goals, not at all. But you can also argue actually that um, high power people, when they are in high power positions, they really have to deal with a lot of different demands. They have a ton of different responsibilities. So they also have, um, they also are in this multi multitask um, surrounding as well. So documents, I guess, go both ways. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, so so there, there, there are two things. One, one is the complexity of the number of tasks that you, you, have to, you, you, you have to do. And the other is sort of the luxury of being able to prioritize them. Um, and so if I understand this correctly, Petra, the, with power comes the luxury of prioritization uh, that is not really afforded to people without power in some sense. Exactly, I love the way you, you put it. Um, that is exactly um, what, what I would say and what my research also suggests. Yeah, it's really interesting. You have a couple of new papers. Um, one, one of them is power reduces the gold gradient effect. Um, you say, how does the experience of power affect individuals' motivations to pursue goals at different stages of goal pursued? You say you hypothesize that experience power, uh, that, that experience power affects individuals' motivation as a function of perceived goal proximity. Uh, and so, so, so you're, you're looking at uh, individuals at different different points in that pursuit and then looking at how power affects them. Exactly. Here in this research, I focused on motivation mainly. I also had some performance indicators, but motivation was the main goal. And I was interested in how motivated people are to put effort into a goal when they just start pursuing that goal. So when the goal is still far away, they're just at the beginning of that goal pursuit versus yes when they're already close to attaining the goal. Um, yeah. Results were quite interesting, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, hear, uh, they, they perform better when the goal was far versus near, while individuals experiencing low power showed an opposite, opposite trend. Um, 
So again, it is some sort of um, uh, endowment here, right? When you, when, with power, you have more freedom uh, and you are less worried about um, when the outcomes are going to happen. Is that the way to think about it? Mm. Um, the way I think about it is that um, when people have high power, they start pursuing their goals right away when, when they see that there is a goal. So they really start and put a lot of effort in that. And then when they start getting closer to that goal and they see that they're on a good path, um, they don't waste their resources. So they stop investing a bit. They might even um, decrease their investment because they see they're going to attain the goal. So they try to really um, save resources, um, but they also start early. So to, to make sure that they actually um, are able to pursue that goal. Um, people who experience low power, um, they're not so good with, with goals that are far away. Yeah. Um, they live more in the here now because they do not um, have the resources um, to care about the future too much um, there. Uh, focus is on what's, what's happening right now. So a far goal um, for them is is they kind of neglect it. They don't invest so much. They're not motivated. But when they um, have this feeling that they're now close to goal attainment, then they feel like, oh, now I'm, I really want to attain that goal. So I, I am motivated and I invest into it. Yeah, you make another observation here. Findings suggest that high power does not always increase performance as previously thought, you say, it depends on how close people are to goal attainment. Um, and so, so if I understand this correctly, Petra, um, low power, uh, close proximity to the goal, um, they might perform well when the, close, uh, when the goal is in, in, uh, in close proximity, uh, but they don't do well when the goal is far. Uh, so it's not a performance question, right? It is really about um, when do they expect the, 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 the outcomes? Yeah, exactly. So when it's right before them, they really perform well. They also invest a lot. Um, so they really need to see the price in, in front of them. When it's far away, um, they disengage. They, they do not get started. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to finish up with your uh, latest paper, Psychological Power Alters Cognitive Efficiency. Uh, we talked a little bit about this. Power is known to promote cognitive processing in a goal-directed way. However, it is unknown whether powerful individuals invest more resources when pursuing their goals, whether they invest their resources more efficiently. Uh, so, so what do you find here? You're, you're, looking, um, you're, you're looking into the brain to see if you can make some hypotheses. Yes, exactly. Um, so here, um, I was really interested if the powerful are so, so good at pursuing their goals because they invest a lot, yeah. um, or whether they can actually pursue their goals so well while still conserving resources. So that means that they are um, more efficient. So what I did um, is I had uh, my participants um, do a working memory task. And while they were doing this working memory task, I measured their brain activity. And um, so 
in order to look at how efficient my participants were, I looked at how, how much neuro how how much neural resources they invest while performing that task. Yeah. So I first found that participants did not differ on the performance level. So my high power participants and my low power participants performed similarly, but the high power participant um, used less neural resources to actually come to the same result. So I concluded then that um, they are more efficiently so they can achieve um, the same results by investing less um, effort. Hmm. That's really fascinating. So power reduces cognitive cost and allow uh, the individual to become more cognitively efficient uh, to reach to reach goals. Uh, I was wondering, Petra, you know, the, in an organizational context, I know that you do a lot of work there too. Um, have there been any studies that looked at, suppose you take an individual inside an organizational setting, uh, let's say that individual had low power and, you know, you make a switch to a high power situation. Um, I wondered how long it takes for that individual to change or does that individual change at all? Mm, yeah, that's interesting. So there are um, much less studies done in organization with such experimental settings because you, not, you cannot just contact an organization and say, hey, <laughs> I want to pick your employees and put them in high power positions right now and you yeah. uh, bosses, um, you don't have any power right now. They, they just won't. Um, do that. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> so um, there are less studies doing this. Um, but um, in my research, I showed that these effects happen right away. So I just changed their mindsets. Yeah. And then the, the way they approach a task um, is completely changed. Mm. So I think my question is, is rather like, are these effects long term or do they happen just when you get in this rush of feeling powerful because you just have been put in a high power position, um, like what are the factors that uh, that basically change these effects? Um, I don't know anything concretely for my research, but there's some research showing that it's uh, very important whether you feel legitimate in your high power um, position. If you don't, then often you have reverse effects um so you behave like low power people um it also depends on whether you think um your power is stable so or whether you have to worry that you could lose that power if you have these worries that you can lose the power the beneficial effects also often go away um again i haven't studied this um, on efficiency specifically but i could imagine that this um factors also um, play an important role here yeah. Would it be correct in saying, uh, Petra, if you look at all your studies and all the work that you have done in this area, the, the power effect is not systematic. Uh, it's not systematic. It's a constraint effect, uh, meaning if you can remove the constraint, you, you basically switch over uh, to another way of thinking, another way of uh, looking at problems, another way to pursue goals and so on. So do you do you think power as sort of a constraint 
on on the on the individual um so do you mean that um the power lack of, lack of power lack of power i should say less power does that act as a constraint in their thought processes uh yeah i would say so um i do still think that we need to investigate um low power much more now than high power because we have quite a lot of theory and research on the effects of high power, much less on the effects of low power. So we do need to investigate more to make um, a lot of conclusions or better conclusions about them. Um, but right now, I think that's um, what the pattern of research shows that low power really um, hinders you in your cognitive processing, um, goal pursuing decision-making. Yeah, um, I, I don't know anything about this, but I'm just thinking the other interesting thing would be what happens in sort of a discontinuous situation. So most of the experiments are more continuous. You know, um, you have power, you don't have power, and you are in that regime, you're making decisions. What happens when there is a regime shift that a powerful person suddenly finds himself or herself without power um, you know, is, is there a difference there? Uh, do they do they utilize their experiences from before in some way, or do they just switch over <laughs> to the, the low power regime? Yeah, this is a very interesting, exciting question. Uh, I would love to do um, research in this area. It's a bit more complicated because you need longer experiments. Yeah. Um, where you have to change um, um, people's power. I also think it matters um, whether they know that they could lose their power or not, because when people know that they can lose their power, their main motivation um, is normally to maintain their power. So they focus on that and less on, like, for example, leading a group well. They just focus on their own individual performance, and that can be to the detriment of the group. So we know things in, in this area a bit. Um, but I, for example, would also wonder what is the difference of like just putting people in this low power position or having people actually losing power. Mm -hmm. So when they actually have experienced high power just before, but suddenly um, they, they have low power. It might not be the same uh, when like comparing a person who has had no power for a longer time with a person who has just lost power. Um, I we don't really know much um, with regard to this at the moment. And I think there's really a, a need uh, for more research here. It's super interesting and it would also um, be closer to what we experience in real life. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, yeah, this, this is fascinating, fascinating research, Petra. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.